everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Rights for Women. Rights for Women is a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. We chat to women writers about their writing process, the highs and lows of the writing life, their new release books, their old release books, sometimes about the business of writing, and always about the joys and the things that we love to celebrate about being authors. Obviously, because we're talking about books and writing books, the podcast is definitely reader-friendly, and I love that I'm getting some great feedback on the podcast from both readers and writers. Before we start today's podcast, I'd like to acknowledge that this podcast is recorded on Dharawal country and pay my respects to elders past and present. And just a little reminder that there could sometimes be a little bit of cheeky language. So if you do have little people around while you're listening to the podcast, just be aware of what could be coming up. Nothing like that in today's session, though, I don't think, because today's session is actually a solo session where it's just me in your ears and on your screens if you're watching this on video. And today's episode is really an Ask Pam Anything episode. So this was something that we started back in the day when Kel and I were doing the episodes, and we did have a few of them as the episodes were rolled out. But I haven't done a Q&A for a while, and there have been a few kind of different issues and discussion points coming up lately between myself and other authors and things I've seen discussed on social media. So I thought it might be a good idea to just have a bit of a Q&A session. And I'm just going to start this whole thing with a caveat that anything I say is purely my opinion. I'm not and I'm not the god of publishing and writing, and there are obviously going to be a multitude of opinions on the answers to any of the questions that are asked in this episode. I'm basing my responses to these questions purely on my own experience and what I have observed after being a writer for the last 23 years and being in the publishing industry for the last 11 years the traditional publishing industry, and also a little bit of experience as an indie author. So please take anything that I say with that in mind, and I'm always happy to hear alternative opinions and to open up the conversation to discussion. So if anything that you hear in this episode prompts a thought from you or you'd like to add to the conversation, Definitely pop something into the thread of the social media post where this is going to be released or email me at w4wpodcast at gmail.com and I can throw your comments and further questions into the next episode. So this is probably going to be a two-parter, I would say. Quite a lot of questions came in when I put out the call on social media for questions about writing and publishing, which is fantastic. So thank you to all those people who responded. And it might even be an ongoing thing where every couple of months or every few months I do a Q&A and I might even open those questions up to some other Q&A episode and possibly even open those questions up and get some other opinions from different authors. We'll see how that goes. So today I'm basically going from the top and starting with the first question that I came across on the thread when I popped the question on Instagram. And it's from Catherine Potgoter. Sorry if I got your name incorrectly pronounced there, Catherine, but thank you so much for your questions. And Catherine gave a fabulous rap to the uh, podcast as well and said it was the first one that she listened to to do with writing and continues to listen to. So thank you very much for that. 
The question is, do you read a lot outside the genre you write in and do you think you would ever write in a different one? So for me, the answer to the first part of that question, do you read a lot outside the genre you write in, is definitely yes. So I define myself as writing in the genre of women's fiction or perhaps more specifically rural women's fiction. When I was first published by Hachette, my books were marketed as rural romance because at the time rural romance was in its early stages of development. The publisher was looking for an author that fitted that genre and because my book was about a woman and it was set in the country and it had horses in it, it fitted the rural romance genre as established by authors like Rachel Treasure and continuing on with Mandy Magro, Fleur, McDonald, and a whole range of others. So romance was expected in that genre. And even though I didn't write straight romance, I did go on, I guess, in the next few books to write romantic elements into the story, which was absolutely fine and fitted the journeys, I guess, that my characters were on. So in my heart and what I have now developed into is a women's fiction author, contemporary women's fiction. And because I write my stories set always in a rural location or containing at least a rural location, and I love to write about landscape and setting, I have joined the ranks of women like Leonie Kelsall, who are writing rural stories that don't necessarily contain romance, but definitely have that rural element. So that's the genre that I write in. I do read within that genre. I read rural romance. I read women's fiction. That is, I guess, the main genre I read. But I do also read crime and I don't read a lot of fantasy, but every now and then I do read usually a student's work that's fantasy and absolutely love it. So that's definitely a genre I'd like to explore further. I don't read horror and I don't read science fiction, but I do find that reading across a range of genres helps to broaden your ideas. It helps to show you different ways in which the structure of a book can be set up. You get great ideas for twists and turns from crime books and historical fiction is also another really favorite genre of mine and I love when historical fictions have dual timelines and multiple points of view and what I've found is and I think most writers find this that once you've started writing and you've been writing for some time it's really hard to divorce yourself from analyzing what you're reading you tend to read as a writer and that's great we should be reading as writers to some extent because we want to be absorbing and picking up all those fantastic things that other writers are doing, not to copy them, not to mimic them, but to broaden our own writing experience. And I, I maintain that reading is the best way to learn. And one of the things that I do in my Turn Up the Tension course is that I ask students to have a model text where, which is a book within their own genre that they use as a textbook just to refer back to how did the writer open the book? How do they construct a scene? How do they write dialogue? How much description do they have? All those sorts of things, because I think we can learn from the people who have already done it and we can then use those techniques to adapt them to our own writing and our own writing style. So I love to read outside my genre. And in terms of would I write in a different one, I guess I'd 
haven't necessarily written in a different one, but I've broadened out. Where I started off writing rural romance, rural fiction, I've broadened out to contemporary women's fiction. I could potentially see myself writing historical fiction. I don't think I would ever write crime, but my motto is never say never because you just never know what's around the corner in life and in, certainly in this industry. The writing outside of your genre is a little bit of a fraught question because what happens when you are picked up by a publisher is that they pick you up either because they're looking for a book in that genre or they want to brand you as an author who writes within that genre. So if you're picked up, for instance, writing crime, your publisher, a traditional publisher, will want you to continue to write in that genre. The same if you write romance, probably science fiction, not that I'm familiar with that genre, but whatever genre your publisher picks you up in, that's going to be what they want to establish you in. So it's going to be probably at least four books before a publisher will allow you, if you like, or go along with you breaking out of your genre, if that's something that you want to do. And I guess that can be a little bit restrictive. And for some people, that's why they choose to become indie authors, because you can write across genres and you can write anything you like because you don't have someone over your shoulder saying, no, you can't do that. It's completely up to you as an indie, what you write and what you publish. I guess who we need to consider, though, is the reader. So readers are going to pick our book up and if they love it, they're going to think, okay, where's the next book like that from that author? So you do want to have some consistency in your brand with your readers. That said, I think there are a lot of readers like me and like many people I know who read across genres too. So they're going to be happy to read if they like your voice and your style and the way that you write your characters and your plots. They're going to try you in different genres and different authors who I've spoken to who write, maybe they write in rural romance and erotica, or maybe they write historical and contemporary. Different authors I have spoken to who write across genres say a lot of their readers do go with them across those different genres. So in terms of writing outside your genre, I do think it's good to establish yourself in a particular genre first, as a traditional publishing house would want you to do. And then once you have earned your stripes and you really have the burning desire to write in something outside of that genre, I always believe you should follow your instincts and go with what's in your heart and what you really want to write. But yeah, you did need to realise that some readers won't go with you while others will and will be happy to. Okay, so here's a really big question from Catherine. Do you have any strategies for fighting fear, the fear of writing something bad, of not being good enough? and overwhelm, she's given fear and overwhelm capitals, made them pronouns, overwhelm being how will I ever get this done or keep track of everything when they sit down next to you at your writing desk. So how would I suggest fighting fear, fear of writing something bad if not being good enough, and how would I deal or suggest dealing with overwhelm, keeping track of everything and getting everything done? Okay, let's tackle fear first. And I honestly think that the biggest thing behind procrastination, and I am the queen of it, believe me, is fear. No matter who you talk to in the author world, we've all felt it. We all constantly deal with it. It doesn't matter if you've had one book, two books, five books, eight books, ten books. There would be very few authors out there who don't feel that fear every time they sit down to write a new book and every time 
for some of us every time we actually sit down to I actually physically feel that fear in my my bones I have this absolute resistance to sit down and write despite the fact that I've been writing now for as I've said in the last question 23 years I've been published for 11 there is always that fear of is this going to be good enough is this going to be rubbish? Am I wasting my time? All those questions are fear-based and it's completely normal to feel that fear. It is widespread amongst writers and I think, in fact, anybody who is creating something that is going to go out into the world, if we're just writing for ourselves and we're never going to show it to anyone, it's going to stay in our diaries or our bottom drawer, we probably don't feel that fear. We wouldn't feel that fear. It's the fear of being judged, of being rejected, of being ridiculed. And certainly when you are writing something that you hope will be published one day, that fear of rejection can be absolutely crippling. There's another question that I've got along these lines, which is about that whole fear of rejection thing, which I'm going to go into a little bit further in that question. But for now, in terms of strategies for fighting that fear. I honestly believe, and I've learned this through practice, that the only solution is to sit down and write. And to do that by blocking out any idea that this has to be good, this is going to be published, somebody is reading this. And I think the important thing here is to really differentiate between the writing process for drafting a story and then the editing or revision process. When we're drafting a story, it's all about getting the idea out on the page. It's about learning who the characters are, finding out what the story is. Even if you're an outliner or a planner, you are going to learn new things along the way. Sitting down with that kind of excitement and thinking, great, what am I going to learn today about this character? What is she going to say? What's going to happen? Where is the story going to go after this writing session? Trying to approach it with a sense of curiosity. And this is one thing that I picked up in a conversation with Holly Ringland in one of our chats on the podcast. And I think it's a really great way to try and tackle this idea of fear is to turn it into a sense of curiosity. If you're curious about what your characters are going to do and what's going to happen next in your story, it's very hard to feel fear at the same time. You might still feel a little bit, but it's just making yourself sit down to do it and accepting that what you write in that writing session when you are drafting, it's not going to be perfect. It's going to need revision. It might even be deleted in the end, but it's part of the process and understanding that process that drafting is about creating and coming up with ideas and that just by sitting down and doing the writing we will unlock something within ourselves that allows the story to be told some days that the words are going to flow and they're all going to come out and you're going to look at it and wow go wow did I write that where did that come from other days it's going to be literally like blood from a stone to use a cliche drawing one word out at a time I can recall a particular time when I was contracted for my second book. I was on a very short deadline. That book was Essie's Way, which has been subsequently re-revised as All We Dream and republished. And I had this period right in the middle of the book, and that the middle is often the bit that gets us, where I just could not write anything. I just was absolutely crippled by fear, but I knew 
that I had a deadline and I knew that I had to get it to the publisher. The release date was set. It was a very short time frame. So I just sat down after a couple of weeks of this, of just continuously procrastinating and looking for reasons not to write. I sat down and just thought, right, one word at a time. Don't worry about what word it is. Even if you're repeating something that you've already written, just get it down. Get one word down, get the next word down. Let go of the sense that it has to be good or perfect because it can and will be revised. So I found that just doing that and forcing myself through it was the solution. Again, even though I know that now, I still do the same thing. I still procrastinate. I've been doing it for weeks when I'm having to go back to a book that I'm halfway through and that I do have a deadline for this year. So it's not something for me anyway that goes away. It's always there. It's a continual battle. But definitely taking action is the best way to get through that fear. Sometimes you do need to give yourself some space. You do need to give yourself a break. Take yourself for a walk. Walk in the bush, walk by the beach, walk in a garden, get out into nature. Let yourself have some thinking time, some space for your creativity, flourish. And sometimes talking the problem through with a fellow writer can be really helpful as well because they're the people that are going to understand how you're feeling and they're going to be the ones that are prepared to listen and talk you through that. So strategies for fighting fear, hopefully that has helped. Ultimately, it's actually sitting down and doing the writing. I put a post on social media and I'm sure I've picked this phrase up from somewhere, but the only way out is through. And I think through the writing, um, you'll push through the fear. And the quicker that you get to the desk and do those words, the quicker you will dissipate that fear. The longer that you hang around thinking about it and procrastinating and doing other things, the more the fear will grow. Get rid of perfection. Do what Elizabeth Gilbert says. Stick the imposter in the back seat or in the side seat and say, you're along for a ride but you are not taking the wheel. I'm in control. I'm getting words down and sorry, not listening to your directions. In terms of overwhelm, yes, I am constantly feeling overwhelmed. I'm not a planner for my writing and I'm not generally a planner in life. Every year I buy a diary at the beginning of the year and I start off really well with great intentions, setting goals, doing all those things we're supposed to do, keeping track of everything by writing it down and then weeks will go by sometimes months where I don't write a thing in the diary, something else that I'm continuously working on. So I think in terms of overwhelm, sometimes you just have to get to a point where you know your limits and sometimes we hit rock bottom or we just cannot get everything done. Things will start to slip and we realize that we can't get through everything that we want to get through in a day or a week or a month. So an example of that for me is the podcast. <laughs> I realized last year that if I wanted to get words on the page and I wanted to get writing done, having a weekly podcast where I had to read a book every week, prepare the questions, talk to the authors and record that interview and then edit it and release it was just too onerous for me to be doing that every week. So I brought on some guest hosts. So I'm still editing and releasing those podcasts, but I'm not in the seat every week and I'm not having to read a book a week as much as I love reading. I just couldn't keep it up. 
I guess thinking laterally sometimes about can you bring in help? Can you get an assistant? Sometimes people get a virtual assistant to help them if their workload is too much. Writing a list of all the things that you have to do is a really great way of it, of trying to sort this out and then really having a good hard think about do I really need to do all those things? Prioritising them. What are the things that have to come first? If you've got a deadline for a book or a short story or something, that obviously has to come first. You have to factor in family time. You have to factor in downtime, recreation time, all those things. So I find writing a list prioritizing it with numbers, actually deleting things off the list if they really don't have to be done now or done at all, that is really helpful. And and when I actually do get to doing that, writing things down in a diary, using a whiteboard is a great way of keeping track of things. And really, I guess it's about listing and prioritizing, getting help when you need it, and really being realistic about how many hours you have in a day, what you can do in that time, and what you need to basically let go of. And another really important thing with that too, I think, is letting go without guilt. So again, using the podcast as a reference, last week I went to the Rachel Johns Readers Retreat, which was absolutely amazing. Met so many readers. It was brilliant and hung out with fabulous writers, of course, in Handorf near Adelaide but I hadn't had time to get an episode edited and released. So I just said to myself, you know what? If the podcast doesn't go out this week, it's not the end of the world. People who are loyal listeners are going to come back next week. And if they don't, there's nothing that I can do about that. It's out of my control to some extent. So you really have to keep your own mental health paramount. You have to, of course, consider your obligations to other people But when worse comes to worse, you then have to very gently explain sometimes that you just can't do what you had maybe committed to do, that you need a longer time frame. And people generally understand. People are generally very kind. You might get the odd negative response, but um, being honest and really explaining situations to people I have found in the past is the way to go and really overcommitting yourself. You're just going to end up frazzled. You are going to end up not really achieving anything and you're certainly not going to achieve your goals in terms of writing or the other things that you want to get done in life. So thank you very much for those questions, Catherine. I hope that you found those answers helpful or at least interesting and would love to hear your response to those. Okay, I have a couple of questions also from Leanne Lovegrove. Shout out to Leanne, who is also an author and and I know a very loyal listener to the podcast. So thank you for that, Leanne, and thank you for your questions. Leanne's first question is, what are your tips for knowing that you have a good story idea and knowing it's worth developing before you embark on the work of drafting a novel? Great question, because we don't want to be spending hours or days or weeks or months or even years sometimes following a story that's not going to go anywhere. So I guess what you have to consider here, I'm going to assume, Leanne, that this is a story that you would hope to have published at some point so that you are ultimately working towards publication. Always remembering that that first draft or even the first couple of drafts, we don't want to put too much pressure on ourselves with those. We just want to explore the ideas. So I think sometimes we do have to write a certain amount of words before we understand that this story isn't really going to go anywhere or at the moment there's not 
enough in there for us to develop the storyline. So if you write 10 or 20 or 30,000 words and then have to scrap it or file it, because never, ever scrap anything, always keep it for later just in case, it's never wasted because you, in the writing, you are developing more ideas, you're learning about character, you're improving your writing skills just by doing it. I don't think anything that you write is ever wasted. And I guess in terms of when would you know that it would be a storyline to develop, I think if you get to about twenty or 25,000 words, things should start to be developing. So I think the important thing for story ideas is to make sure that you always have a really strong inciting incident. So that point of change very close to the beginning of the story, around 10 or 15% where the character is hit with a really drastic change in their life or something that potentially cause change, something that is going to flip their world in some way. So thinking about your character and having that incident happening relatively early in the novel, that's then going to set the story off on a particular path. And then also working out what are the resulting obstacles from that inciting incident and what are the variations of conflict that can come as a result of that. Whatever that story idea is, whatever the kernel is, it needs to have the potential for plenty of conflict. Really, conflict creates the spine of the story. And if we don't have enough conflict in the story, if we don't have the character being pushed and pulled in different directions and really being put under pressure, we need to have our character under pressure in order for that story to be interesting and to be able to be developed. So I think that having a story idea that has the potential for all those things, for conflict, pressure on your character, development of your character. So a really big thing is to make sure that who your character is at the beginning of the story, they're going to be someone possibly completely different at the end and certainly changed in some way by the action of the story and the events that they've undergone. So a story idea has to have all those things. And sometimes when you first come up with the idea, it might not seem to have those things, but If it's a story that keeps calling to you, and I think that's another really important point, is it a story idea that just won't go away, that you keep coming back to and thinking about? Because I'm a really big believer in our subconscious kind of calling us towards stories. If that story idea won't go away and it does keep calling you, sit down and spend some time with it. Do some brainstorming, do some developing of character, write down a list of possible conflicts and obstacles and go wild with it. Think about the really extremes of things that could happen. It doesn't mean that you're plotting the story out necessarily, but you're just developing a whole web of story ideas that are possibilities for where that story could go. And if those things excite you and make you think, oh, yes, then I think you're onto something. And if the story just seems to be hitting roadblocks all the time, it might be something that you need to come back to or let go of. So that's the kind of way that I work around it as well. I'm not someone that has a zillion ideas. I wish I did. But I do find that when an idea comes to me, if I park it on the back burner of my brain for a little while, after a while, I will get some other connected ideas coming in and often a second storyline. And sometimes having that second storyline that you're able to develop with the first one in in tandem can really give a strong backbone to your story. So go with your gut, 
listen to your subconscious, do lots of brainstorming and creative things around that story idea. And if it still really grabs you and is giving you that zing, uh, definitely go with it. Leanne's second question is connected to what Catherine asked, and that is, should we always stick to our brand or are there times to follow your heart and write the story you really want to write? I think the answer to that, Leanne, is in the second part of your question about writing the story you really want to write. I do think that, as I mentioned in answer to Catherine's question earlier, if we aim for publication, particularly if it's publication with a traditional publishing house, you do need to stick to your brand for a while. But at some point, I think it is fine to branch out. And I think if you have a story in your heart that you really want to write, then you should actually do it, even if it is within a different genre. I guess in saying that, you have to accept that if you do have a publishing deal, your publisher may not pick that particular book up because they might want to keep you in the genre in which you're already branded. But also, there are numerous authors who write across different genres but I do think you need to establish yourself in one for a few books, maybe three, four, so that you have a chance to develop your audience within that brand. And then once the readers love your writing style and love your characters and the way you tell a story, they'll quite happily, a lot of them, switch with you to a different brand. Some writers choose to use a pseudonym for writing in a different brand, and that's absolutely fine. You can do that whereas others just think, no, nah, it's just too complicated. I am not going to change names. I am going to write under different brands. And you can actually organize that on your website so that when people pop onto your website, they can see you might have your rural romance books on one tab and then your crime fiction on another or your historical on another. So it's just something you have to weigh up. If you're indie, you can basically do what you like and many indie authors do write across genres. Okay, another question or I guess comment from another very loyal listener, Desney King. Shout out to Desney who has a fantastic book out there, Transit of Angels, but it's an absolutely beautiful story about a woman dealing with grief and and renewal and hope and friendship. There's so many different things going on in that story and it's absolutely beautiful. I'll put a link to that in the show notes if you'd like to check out Desney's book and Leanne's also. So Disney talks about the importance of using professional editors and proofreaders in self-publishing. And this is something that when I self-published my the first book that I did indie publish, Cross My Heart, I was really keen to make sure that book could sit on the shelf alongside traditionally published books and people wouldn't be able to know the difference in terms of the cover, the typesetting and all those sorts of things, but also in terms of the level of editing and copy editing and proofreading that went on within that book. Now, I think for indie publishing, and Desney has asked this question about self-publishing, it can be tempting to just get a friend to copy edit it for you or maybe just, oh, no, I'll just do it myself. I'm great at proofing my own work. But I think the thing is that we always need somebody else's eyes on that work. So whether that's the structural edit where... They're looking at the bigger picture and seeing the character development, the plot line, all those sorts of things, or whether it comes down to the copy editing and then finally the proofreading, just done at the end of that whole process. We don't see these things in our own stories. We're too close to them. 
it's really impossible to divorce yourself completely from your own writing and to be 100% objective about it. And often we're not very objective about it at all. We've probably all picked up books, both trad and self-published, where there have been the odd typo and things like that. And sometimes there is more than the odd one. And I think you're doing yourself a disservice there if you don't spend the time and the money to have your work professionally edited and to make sure that the work that you're putting into the reader's hands is 100% professional because what will happen over time, even if they read another of your books and another, if the same thing is happening, then they're likely to just not buy the next one and to pick up another book that they would hope is professionally edited. I think there is plenty of scope to find professional editors of all types. There are many freelancers around who do an excellent job and word of mouth is great. Talk to friends who have self-published books if you're new to it and I'm definitely no expert having only self-published two books but there is always someone that you can ask, someone you can get help from and there are always suggestions. There's plenty of great indie forums and groups on Facebook and there is plenty of information out there on how to go about finding editorial for any work that you do choose to self-publish. So I think that's a really great point, Desney, the importance of making sure that the work that you're putting out there is as professional as it can be, just so that you can pick up and keep your readership and have them coming back to read more. Desney's second question is about how to get self-published books into bookstores. Now, I am as I said, no expert on indie publishing. And as far as I know, in Australia at least, it is very difficult to get self-published books into bookstores. If you have a personal relationship or some kind of business relationship with an independent bookstore, then you are often able to ask them to stock your books. I've had a great relationship with Harbour Books in Ulladulla who have always stocked my books and one or two others, Anna at Cronulla, shout out to Anna if you're listening, has always stopped my books when she had the store. But it is really hard because I guess there are a lot of people out there who are self-published and wanting to get their books in front of readers. And bookstores have traditionally just gone with traditional publishers. And of course, Big W is the biggest bookseller in Australia and has very limited shelf space and they will only take books from traditional publishers. There are a few book distributors around and I don't know the names of them, but if anybody does know the names of those book distributors, would be great if you could send them to me who will actually help you get your books into bookstores. I think that's quite a costly process. The book distribution is possibly the hardest part of indie publishing, I think, to be able to get them in physical bookstores. But of course, there are plenty of opportunities to get them into all the online bookstores and then to promote your work through there. There are some readers who will only buy books from places like Big W or their local bookstore. So I guess if we can't get them into those places, then we are missing out on that readership and that is frustrating. But at the moment, as far as I know, apart from those few distributors who will do it for a cost, there isn't really any way other than having that personal relationship and sometimes going around and seeing if you can hand sell to bookstore owners. I know that's how Matthew Riley got his break and a few other self-published authors who have started off that way and then become traditional. But yes, it's a big problem for indie authors. And if anybody does have any information about how you can get your books into bookstores as an indie, then I would be really happy to hear that and to pass that on via the podcast. 
Okay, and just to finish up this episode one of Ask Pam Anything, because I do have quite a few questions still to go to answer, so I will definitely make a part two of this episode, so keep a lookout for that in the coming weeks. Uh, But the last set of questions are from my friend and writing buddy Penelope Janu. We write together in the writing group The Inkwell, along with a whole lot of other fabulous authors. And Pen has given me some questions which I will hopefully be able to answer very succinctly to finish the episode off. So the first one is, do you have a daily word count? I don't write daily. That's a, There's a confession. When I am in the midst of a novel, like actually actively writing the novel, I aim for a word count of around 2,000 words a day. I find that my kind of optimum amount that I seem to get to without too much trouble is around 1700 and I don't know whether that's because I first started writing in that style when I did Nano for my first novel Blackwater Lake and that's 1700 words a day but I do find it's fairly easy to get to 1700 words and I do find that daily writing when I am in the middle of writing a novel is really important because you lose the thread of the story, you get out of the characters' heads if you have a break, and I'm at that point at the moment where I'm halfway through a novel that I left to write a novella and I've come gone in and out of, but I really need to sit down and get back to that daily word count. So I do aim for 2,000 words a day. If I get over 1,000, great. If I get to 1,700, fantastic. And anything over 2,000 is absolute icing on the cake. Second question from Penelope is, what is my process? That's a great question, and I wish I knew the answer. I think in terms of writing, uh, when I'm writing a novel, I get a general idea. It might be just a glimmer of a story idea, a woman in a particular situation. And then I think on that for a little while until the woman has more of a problem, plenty of obstacles in the way. I think about what the character's backstory might be. I do use onestopforwriters.com a lot. Now, these are the same people that came up with the Emotion Thesaurus and now have a whole lot of resources, including the Emotion Thesaurus, under that website, onestopforwriters.com. So I do sometimes go on to there if I've got an idea for a character and start to flesh the character out. They have a great character profile tool that you can use on there where you can build up all sorts of things, including the character's occupation, backstory, the character's wound, their relationships. And I just find doing that kind of helps me to get more into the skin of the character and to start to work out what that character's problems might be. So I do often start dabbling around with that at the beginning of a story and I often go back in and out of that during the course of of writing the novel if I get a little bit stuck and I'm not quite sure of what did I say about the character's flaw or wound and you know can I go back and and really deepen that and think about that further so one stop for writers I find a great tool that's part of my process I do use the emotion thesaurus on a almost daily basis when I'm writing because I dip in and out of that trying to come up with ways to show a character's emotions rather than to tell them and then basically I just sit down and write and I tend to get to around 20 or 25,000 words before I hit too much of a roadblock and then I go back look at what I've got I'll often rejig the beginning and I find that if I get the beginning then I have the foundations for the rest of the story I often still am changing the beginning by the time I get to the end because I don't think you really know the beginning of your story until you do get to the end, particularly if you are a pantser or a discovery writer where you're finding out about the stories and characters as you go. So there is constant tweaking going on. But once I get that first quarter established, I like to then go all the way through and try and write 
without looking back too much. Although in the last couple of novels I've written, I have taken up Penn's advice, actually, or Penn's practice of writing a section in the morning, revising it later in the day or the next day before I then write the next scene because it helps to familiarise yourself with what's happened in that scene. You can change some of the things that you've had a different idea on overnight and then it gets you set up to write your new scene. I sometimes sketch out for a scene what the main things that are going to happen in the scene are. So what is the character's goal? What does the character want in the scene? What are the obstacles to her getting that goal in that scene? Who else is in the scene with her? The setting. So I do make rough notes on in Scrivener. I use Scrivener to write my draft and I use the index cards the, on the noteboard to do a little summary description of the scene before I launch into actually writing the scene. And then I go back and tweak both of those. So the first quarter gets a pretty thorough going over. And then I try and write all the way through just going backwards and forwards over each scene as I write it. And then, of course, I try and let it sit. If I've got time and I don't have too tight a deadline, I will let that sit for a couple of weeks. The longer the better, really, so that you actually can come back to it with an objective eye. Then I read through the whole thing without trying to without making too many changes at all just to get an overall idea of the character and the storyline and then I go back and start moving scenes around fixing scenes making sure that all the characters have goals in those scenes and then doing that probably multiple times until I actually get it right and then printing it out and reading it on paper and definitely reading it out loud before I would send it off to anyone for submission. So it's a very quick rundown on my writing process, <laughs> which has changed a little bit over the years. And I used to just start with one thing all the way through without looking back at all and then just seeing what I had. But I do a little bit more backwards and forwards these days. Do you write your scenes in order? Yes, I pretty much do. I'm a chronological kind of gal. I do sometimes write a scene out of order if I just have a, a very sh a sudden, oh, I've got to write that scene. That doesn't happen very often, though. I tend to just be in the flow of the storyline and write the scenes as they happen chronologically. And every now and then I will move a scene around, particularly because I do use Scrivener. I can move the index cards around and I can move, the, move it around within Scrivener. So I love that aspect of that writing tool. And then finally, which I think is a great question to finish this episode on, what sparks your creativity? Such a good question. Um, I think when, you are, when you've written multiple novels, it can be hard to try and come up with new ideas. For me, it's usually things that I hear in the news or often stories that I hear via friends or friends' experiences that I then fictionalise. So those sorts of stories, anything that is involving a woman having to adjust to a big change in her life and how that change affects her and her relationships, those sorts of stories really spark my creativity. Other things other than that kind of spark my creativity, I would say reading generally sparks my creativity. I often am very inspired by reading the works of other authors. Reading poetry really inspires my creativity as well, and I want to get back to doing some daily poetry reading each morning. I saw Geraldine Brooks at the Sydney Writers' Festival, and that is part of her practice to read a poem every morning or before she starts her writing session, and I think that's just such a lovely idea because it really gives you a different perspective on things and gets you into that whole beautiful world of, of lovely language, which we are all hoping to get onto the page ourselves. 
Music is another thing that sparks my creativity and particularly country music because I love the stories in country music and I used to be uh, listening to music all the time. I have dropped off a little bit on that but I do find when I do sit down and just listen to music just for the pure joy of it, I do find myself being really inspired and often coming up with some kind of idea. And the other thing is walking and just being out in nature, being in the garden, even if I'm pruning roses or weeding, just having that mental space and fresh air and being around beautiful plants and flowers, even if they're weeds. But also walking, I'm very lucky to have a lot of bush on my property and we have walking trails through there. So I can just go off for a little bit of a a jaunt around the place with um, the dogs and just take myself down and sit at the creek and listen to the burble of the water. And I find that is very inducive to creativity. The other thing that doesn't necessarily sparks my creativity but gives me a complete mental break is riding my horse. So when you're riding your horse or riding, you're riding an animal that is unpredictable, even though they have been trained, you never quite know what they're going to do as much as you do trust them and develop that trust. But it's great to have that mental break and just to be doing something where you are completely absorbed in it. A little bit like meditation. And that's something else that I do love to do, but I haven't been doing enough of. So something I definitely want to get back to and combine it with my writing practice. So there are a few things that I do to spark my creativity. I need to integrate them into my daily practice a lot more thoroughly, I think. I'm a bit hit and miss with some of those. But I think anything that we can do that sparks our creativity, gives us a new perspective, gives us some clear headspace, is only going to benefit our writing. Thank you so much for those questions, Penelope. And I would love to hear how you do all those things and hear a little bit about some of the listeners what your process is what your create how you spark your creativity so feel free to drop an email or to pop something in the socials when these posts this goes up on social media so that's it for episode one of ask pam anything and i hope that you have found these responses useful as i said they're purely my responses and somebody else would answer those questions completely differently and possibly a lot more succinctly but there you go i am a bit of a rambler That's it. Thank you so much for your questions to Penelope, Catherine, Leanne and Desney and to everybody else who sent in questions. I'll be addressing those in the next episode. So that's it this week for Rights for Women. Thank you for listening. If you loved what you hear, if you like what you hear, it would be great if you could pop a review on whatever podcast platform you are listening on. And the reviews are a little bit similar to book reviews and things like that on Amazon where it allows other, it pushes you higher up the rankings and it allows other listeners to discover the podcast, which would be wonderful. If you would like to join my Patreon program, you can check that out on the Rights for Women website and at patreon.com slash rights for women with the four in the middle. And you can support the podcast for a small amount each month and get some bonus materials there that you can find out about via Patreon or via the website. So that's it for this week's episode. I hope you've enjoyed it. We have plenty more episodes coming up with some great guest hosts on the horizon. And remember that every word that you type, you're one step closer to typing the end.